the Lord if you'll say, oh, my soul, bless the Lord. Bless his holy name. Thanks, Jacoby. We believe that the word of God is important in the worship of God, and I love the way that you read scripture. Um, I'm Chris. I'm the pastor here, and welcome. Um, If you're new with us or weren't here last week, I'm glad you're here, but give me one second to catch up um, with some of my people from last week. We're in the middle of a series called Halo Effect, One Change That Changes Everything. And last week, we went Old Testament in here. We called for a sacred and holy and solemn seven-day fast from complaining. How many of you attempted to go seven days without complaining? How many of you failed miserably? Welcome, the water is warm. How many of you were like, ah, that was not comfortable, me being uncomfortable about being aware of how much I actually do complain? I don't know what to think about that talk or that sermon. I've probably received more feedback on that sermon than any other sermon I've ever preached. And it wasn't necessarily affirming. It wasn't like, wow, the worship was powerful. And Chris, man, you were full of the spirit with authority and persuasion. It was more like I've had more conversations this week with people arguing and complaining with me about a sermon on arguing and complaining. And so to their point, some questions are valid. We didn't have time to go into all the minutia or the details, but a lot of little raging legalists came out of the woodwork to go, well, is this actually complaining? What about this? Where do I draw the line? How much complaining can I get away with and it still not be sin? Like, great, (laughs) this is awesome. Um, And things I've been asking myself. So just as follow-up and clarification, and anyone who wants to renew their seven-day commitment, especially going into the holidays, could you imagine what your holiday would be like if you were complaint-free? Unbelievable, right? (laughs) You'd be like, Jesus is resurrected. (laughs) Um, First question I got, hey, if you think about complaining but don't verbalize it, is that complaining? Um, I would say that's between you and the Holy Spirit, but if I was the Holy Spirit, which I'm not, I would draw your attention to a verse written about me in Romans that says, a mind ruled by the Spirit is life and peace. And when you're having an inner tirade of tyranny against traffic and waiting and all the things that are wrong, is your mind being ruled by the Spirit and is it bringing you life and peace or is it bringing death and chaos? And normally our speech is, I could be wrong, I haven't really studied the research on this, I think our speech is influenced by what we think. So it might be helpful to also try to not complain and change the way that you're thinking, which by the way is one of the meanings of the word repentance. Change the way that you think. Change the direction of your attitudes and your thoughts and then your words and then your actions. Second question I got, hey Chris, When you're asking us not to complain, isn't that just another form of repression of your true thoughts, feelings, and emotions? No, it is actually asking you to order them, control them, and take responsibility for them, and then express them in gospel-centered ways that articulate what you care about and how you're gonna contribute to it. Other one I got, uh, let me make sure I get this one right. Um, Oh, yeah. Does complaining mean I suffer in silence in the face of injustice and oppression? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It means you find your true voice. And in 
amazing ways you begin to articulate what it is that the gospel bears upon that injustice or oppression. What I wanna guard us against is speaking unjustly and oppressively against injustice and oppression and thereby defeating the very thing that we're fighting against. And then the uh, last one, this is the, this is the one I've struggled the most with and I could have asked it of myself and I did. Does sarcasm count as complaining? Let me answer it for myself. The answer is yes, because I use sarcasm as a way to camouflage my complaining. I sandwich it between humor and passive aggressiveness. And while you're laughing, you're not realizing what I'm doing is I'm making fun of a problem and excusing myself from contributing to it or taking any responsibility towards confronting it. We had a staff meeting on Thursday, and Beth, my administrative assistant, had to look at me and say, what's wrong with you? I'm trying not to use sarcasm. <laughs> I realized that that's one of my primary coping techniques, and it's the primary way in which I complain and make myself look better and other people foolish. And so one of the things that we were practicing this week in our family, and I'll give you this as a tool in your tool belt in conversations, and especially as you go into holidays, and you just hear people Complaining. You ever notice in conversations, I do this too, but I notice it more when you do it. People just start getting ahead of steam up about complaining. Like they'll start complaining about one thing, just snowballs, and all of a sudden you better look out. Avalanche, right? Here's what I'll do. Stop them and interrupt them. When you hear maybe a sarcastic comment or something that's complaining or some way that you're playing the victim and that you have no rights, power, or responsibility in that situation, I'll say, hey, can I stop you right there? What do you care about? and getting them to actually name what it is that they care about. So my, my kids will do it to me. Hey, Dad, are you complaining? Maybe. What do you care about? I care about getting some peace and quiet, please, okay? What do you really care about? I care about you growing up and being children who love and respect their parents and God. And to be quite honest with you, I don't know if I have enough in the tank to do that right now. That's the honest truth. That's me, instead of making sarcastic comments about my kids or my responsibilities, I also find this. The things that I've prayed and asked God for for a lifetime, when he gets them, usually I complain about those things once I've got them. Lord, I, I would love a spouse that I respect and love and can serve and can do life with and who makes me a better man. Oh, my gosh. She's always asking me to do stuff. Yes, I'd love a family of my own. I'd love to be able to give my children something that my father never gave me. Oh, my gosh, with these kids. They're so needy. <laughs> and so am I. <laughs> We're in a text tonight um, where Paul is writing to his church. And he's got a lot that he could complain about. He's in jail on trumped-up charges. He's cold. He's lonely. His churches sometimes are a mess. He's got to write to this one and say, hey, stop arguing and complaining about every little thing. Some people are questioning his credentials. Some people are saying, hey, you're not cool like some of the other apostles that are going around. Some are saying, hey, yeah, you're real tough when you're writing a letter, but when you show up, you're pretty timid. He's got a lot of reason to complain. But instead what he does is he cares enough to confront them with grace and truth. 
And he cares so much about them that he sends his son in the ministry who he says this has proven his worth. And in a sense, with that small and simple action of his sending Timothy to the Philippians, Paul is saying in bold underlined text in his actions, don't miss what matters most. What matters most is caring for others and cultivating Christ in others as you care for them. I think this is, if we can just hear it once again, Cairo's congregation, the Philippian congregation, don't let us miss what matters most. What he's basically saying is discipleship, investing in one another. He's re-articulating the mission that Jesus left us with. Make disciples that make disciples. Chris, why do we always say the word discipleship? What does it mean? It's such a churchy term. Matt Morris is looking it up after going through and reading really weird lyrics from Christmas songs. (laughs) Discipleship simply means this. You make learners of Jesus who want to live out his ways and his words. Another word for it is an apprentice of Jesus. Not someone who's just studying to pass an exam, but someone who's coming alongside of you and says, I want to practice the trade and craft of God, my Father, by following Jesus Christ, his Son. And so, if you'll permit me, I'm going to tell you a a personal story about when and where this became so crucial and important in my ministry and when I think I was in danger of missing what mattered most. It was August 25th, 2010. I was one year into being a college pastor on the campus of the University of Alabama, a 100-year-old church that sits on that campus. They called me as their college minister. Although I had been doing ministry, I had never done it in a local church. I led thousands of worship services, helped plan them, execute them, traveled all over preaching, but I was never responsible daily for pastoring the people that I preached to. And it was overwhelming. I did a lot of things wrong. I did some things right. And they were patient with me and learned with me. And as I grew, much like Kairos, it was a ministry I inherited from somebody, someone who took it literally from 100 to 1,000 in three years. When I asked him how he did it, he said, by God's grace, and literally our building blew up. That's another story for another time. I'd love to tell you it's absolutely hysterical and fascinating. But soon after he left, his name was Ben Pilgreen, and he went to plant a church in San Francisco. And for about 10 to 12 months, the college ministry and the church struggled through some leadership transition. By the time I got there, they were running half of what they normally ran. And I got in, and we got some momentum and got to strengthen some of the leaders back and was trying to figure out what does it look like to pastor people. And so we're going into year two, and we start the semester out, and out of nowhere, man, people just start coming. And it's the second week of the semester, and in that little church, we are trying to cram in over 1,200 college students who are attending an optional worship service on a Wednesday night. We're pulling out chairs. I think we may even have some pictures of that. I don't know if we showed them already. Um, But we're telling our leaders, that's the room. Um, We're telling our leaders, hey, don't sit down. Let other people sit down before. And I mean, there is an excitement and a momentum Oh my goodness, not only are the glory days back, we're going to exceed what's been happening here. It's going to be incredible. Worship was loud that night. It was exciting. And then it was my turn. And this nervous, green, prophetically immature pastor steps up 
and takes the stage and is getting ready to seize the moment that will define the future of that ministry. And I delivered a three-minute sermon and dismissed a bunch of perplexed college students. What some of my students would later refer to behind my back and in front of my face as the sermon was, get in a discipleship group or go home and don't come back sermon. Now, what would possess me, a one-year experienced pastor, while the church is splitting at the seams, getting everything every college minister would ever dream of, having a room full of college students to sing and hear the gospel articulated clearly, to step up on stage and deliver a three-minute sermon and dismiss the largest crowd he would ever preach to in his seven years there. I was afraid we were about to miss what mattered most. I was afraid that we were about to become a platform-based gathering ministry that was neglecting discipleship. And that's what mattered most. I was reading Jesus uh, in an incredible amount of ways during that summer, and I was very perplexed by his ministry. I noticed that when Jesus grew really big crowds towards the end of his ministry, he said really hard things that thinned the crowd right out. I looked at Jesus. He had three years to do public ministry, the son of God on earth. How did he maximize his time as the son of God? The majority of his earthly ministry was spent in discipleship relationships where he cared intently and walked and invited into his life a group of men. And I began to look at how I was pastoring and realizing, I think all my emphasis is going towards gathering large crowds. And then I had to ask the hard question, am I personally discipling someone? Or do I consider my ability to preach my discipleship? And so I just started to wonder, when did we decide that one hour worship service was an acceptable substitute to making disciples that made disciples? Is the church gathering for corporate worship biblical? Absolutely. Is it essential? Yes. But does it too oftentimes become an excuse not to embrace the mission and message of Jesus the rest of the week? Absolutely. And I would go as far as to say is corporate worship was meant to be the means by which we accomplish the mission, not the mission itself. Just singing songs and learning Bible facts, those things are good things, but that's not what Jesus left us with. Go, make learners and livers of my way so that they can turn around and do the same thing. Paul's in a midst where he's been doing that throughout his ministry. He's done it with Timothy. And what's really interesting is he tells Timothy, hey, uh, make sure you understand the faith that you received from your grandmother and your mother. And he's commissioning him to represent himself to this church right here. The only thing that Jesus is counting men and women is disciples. When we get to heaven, he's not going to ask me what was the attendance at Kairos on Tuesday night. He's going to ask me, how many disciples did you make? So let me give you a little bit of context into that three-minute sermon, which, by the way, is not my best sermon, but still one of my favorite. What I have observed when I got there for the first year was 
there was a lot of worship promiscuity going on among our college students. What do I mean by that? They would church hop, go to this, this church on this Sunday, this church on that Sunday, this church, never commit. And then it got even worse, especially some, uh, among our Christian students. It was, hey, we go to this ministry on Monday night. On Tuesday night, we go over to here. On Wednesday night, we'll go to the well. And then Thursday night, this is happening over here. And all the while, after we had done some digging and some researching and some questionnaires, none of them were involved in discipleship-based relationships. What mattered most to them was spiritual goosebumps. And being able to go to where the latest songs are being sung the loudest and the latest preacher who's passionate and persuasive and looks young enough and hip enough to keep their attention. And when he gets old or they get tired or the call to commitment is issued, we bounce. And so I walked up with a shaky voice and trembling hands. And I just said, hey, if you're new with us, or you're just considering the claims of Christ, or you're a new Christian, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. I hope you'll find a place where you can connect. But for those of you who are mature disciples of Jesus Christ, and you are not in a discipling relationship currently, I'm asking you not to come back until that is the priority of your life. And as a matter of fact, if you don't have time, use this hour. Because it won't be with us if you do it during this hour. I need you to know that the gospel is best lived out in the context of community, not hopping from service to service, being nameless and faceless and becoming a consumer of religious goods and services. You were called to so much more than that. You are dismissed. And they were not happy. And I had to work through some of my approval issues. And we dismissed them outside, and there was places where they could sign up with us if they wanted to be in discipling relationships. And then we also made a bunch of sticky notes available and said, hey, if you've got a group that you're in a discipling relationship with, write the name down and post it up there. We want to pray for you. I can tell you this. We had plenty of room in that sanctuary next week. Never saw a crowd like that again. You know what I'm so proud of to this day? 60 to 70% of that congregation are in discipling relationships. Kairos, I'm not the same kid I was 10 years ago. I got a lot more scars and a lot more experience. Maybe a little bit less idealism. But I'll tell you what, my commitment to discipleship has not changed one single bit. In fact, it's increased. For me personally, I don't get a pass because I'm a preacher. I'm in discipling relationships because it's what matters most in life. I orient my life around it. And I want you to hear from me, this is not a bait and switch for you to join a BRG from us. They're available if you need them. But what I'm asking you is, are you in discipling relationships? Because that's what matters most. And I hope you're not in danger of worshiping worship experiences. Please, don't miss what matters most. Making disciples that make disciples. And if you make that one change, I guarantee you, it will change everything. It worked for Jesus. It'll work for you. Amen? So we're going to take 120 seconds.
The worship team's going to come, and I'm just going to ask you a couple questions to trying to reflect on. Again, what I love about Paul sending Timothy is he writes to him later in a letter and says, don't forget the faith of your grandmother Eunice, and I forget his mother's name. Why don't you take a minute and think of the people who had the most profound spiritual impact on your life and thank God for them. Name them by name. Father, I thank you that you placed this person in my life. I thank you that this person invited me in. I thank you that this person took a special interest in me and taught me how to apprentice my life to Jesus. And then think about the current status of your discipleship relationships. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He said, carve your name on hearts, not in marble. And so many of us are so busy in our jobs and our schools and our relationships trying to carve out a name for ourselves. Who are the men or women that you're currently in a discipleship relationship with and pray for them. And if you don't have an answer or a name for that question, start to pray that God would send someone your way or better yet, send you to someone. And then maybe just take a minute and answer this question in a form of a prayer to God. What would be one thing that you would have to change in your life in order to not miss what matters most? Caring for one another and cultivating Christ in one another. What would you have to change in order to center your life around making disciples that make disciples? and ask Jesus for the power to change.